0: Uh, well, so I, I appreciate the, the questions, Nathan, but some of this stuff, we're just not going to release into the marketplace.
1: You are listening to conversations with Nathan Latka, where I sit down and interview the top SaaS founders like Eric Wan from zoom. If you'd like to subscribe, go to getlatka.com. Hey folks, my guest today is Chris Mealy. He's a managing partner for SPP, that Software Pricing Partners, founded in 1982. They do exactly what it sounds like: help you with pricing. But he doesn't just do this as a consultant or in theory. He had his own software company before, which is where he cut his teeth on this. Chris, you ready to take us to the top? I am.
0: Thank you for having All me. All right,
1: Nathan. let's talk about your first SaaS company and sort of the pricing pains you went through and realized this was a big need. What was that software company called?
0: Uh, it was called Companion Cabinet. So that that was not always SaaS. So that started in the late 90s mostly on-premise and then in 08 when amazon just started showing its creds in the cloud is when we actually converted over the market crash of 2008 and 9 and that's how we ultimately became a SaaS company but during that journey we hired software pricing partners that's how i find out about them and that's ultimately how i ended up here
1: and and companion cabinet this was like a business management sort of erp solution right for a specific niche industry
0: Yeah, it was interior and exterior products, in the, mm-hmm. mostly in the U.S. and Europe.
1: Founded, I believe, in sort of 2002, I believe you bootstrapped until you decided to raise angel did. funding. Did you raise a bunch more after the angel round?
0: Yeah. So, so well, we raised a lot, a lot of angel funding money as well. So that was maybe not typical to our Charlotte market, but that um, uh, that time of bootstrapping i had really long hair nathan i actually could put it in my mouth and my parents were getting worried that i was maybe not eating properly but i went three years with no pay i sold everything from my ernst young career houseboat everything used that to start the business and actually had to supplement with some commercial acting here and there to to make it work
1: that's wild no stranger
0: to generic cereal
1: yeah. <laughs> so when you say like a ton of angel funding, I mean, I w- are we talking like 10, 20 million in angel funding yes. or something? Okay. Yeah. And and what was that back then? I mean, was that all like convertible notes or what?
0: Well, actually, it was a mix. So it would it would start. So remember, during the so so when we first started, it was that dot com bust. Then we made it through the oh eight market crash. And so one of the challenges in angel funding uh, is it's not always professional funding. So everybody kind of has a different opinion on the vehicle. So I think. We used just about every vehicle, you know, preferred stock, convertible debentures. We did straight rounds, we did full rounds, we did partial rounds, and as we progressed through the the market crash, the rounds would become more rapid and sort of more or smaller, I guess, and then they would sort of expand again as we got out of the market crash. And so that effect, and what I often tell everybody is. Careful when you start raising money because it can really become your full time job. I mean, it mm-hmm. was really, there was probably about 15 or so folks in total. You had large investors, small investors, some that had some professional background, some that didn't. But that formed the basic of the angel group. And the way in which we finally attracted that. So remember, three years, no money. And I'm asking questions like, well, wh- where does the money come from? And at that point, I had gotten a hold of a sales coach. At the center for entrepreneurial services here in charlotte we hired them he would later climb through every single one of my sales calls for the next five years recording them all tagging them telling me all of the wonderful mistakes that i made and in that process of doing that his comment was look just spend all your time selling once you sell i promise the investors will be lined up and we were lucky enough to have that happen
1: so sum I don't want to get into the weeds about every single angel check, but sum all this up, your capital story up for us at companion cabinet between 2002 and 2013. How much total capital did you raise? It's so about 15 million. One five or five oh. 15 or one 50? Five, 1515. 1515. And yeah. what did that mean for you in terms of dilution? How much did you own when all was said and done personally?
0: Probably around 25%. Okay. So would you do anything now,
1: different now today? You work with a lot of SaaS founders now today.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people chase the capital a little too early. I mean, I think if you can get the early access program underway, notice I didn't say beta with software and you can get a range of deals and you can kind of uncover early on, is this a 10, 100, 1,000, 10,000, $100,000 kind of transaction. And then remember we were going through a deployment shift there. So we were taking half a million dollars of software and kind of converting it over into a cloud model. That's why we sought out software pricing partners to understand what the pricing would look like. Would I do it again? Yeah, so we had a really magic uh, ingredient in our operating agreement. And so um, if you raise capital when you need it, uh, it, doesn't, it turns out that you're not gonna get a really good deal. If you have a large sales backlog and an exciting story, which we had, then we could kind of set the terms in our operating agreement. And one of the terms that I learned from a lawyer friend of mine here in Charlotte was this idea of the required holders and the required holders in the operating agreement was written in with my name on it. And so every investor and member manager position, regardless of dilution required my name and Mm -hmm. I think in an LLC, it affords you a a lot of flexibility. And so because- You were an LLC, not a C-corp. That's right. And so because we were able to dissect units from ownership and control, I mean, there's economic interest and then there's sort of governance, decision-making investor and member manager decisions. We were able to divest the two. Now, I don't Mm -hmm. know if you could do that in today's market, but in the angel network space, we were able to do that and we had a track record that everybody- we were telling people no people were kind of coming back and saying i want in our rounds were oversubscribed and we were kind of saying look here's kind of the terms of the deal and we we got what we asked for for that story and that raising up the capital at that point where you get the sales and you've you've wrung out the sales and marketing risk on the business model that's a little bit different of a story because that story says i'm just coming in for the operationalizing of the business and the fun ride and so that term would work to our advantage later because I think some of the folks probably assumed that it just worked a standard way with the percentage and who gets what vote, but it turned out that we got all the vote on everything.
1: Understood. And Chris, we're talking about pricing, obviously. What was the average customer paying companion cabinet for your software at the time?
0: It was probably about, say an average transaction was probably 250 to 300 grand on-prem. And then in the cloud, yeah, in the cloud, it would have converted over a three-year horizon for the equivalent of, you know, call it 75 grand a year or something like that. But and it at the
1: company's peak, how many customers were you working with?
0: Um, so this would have been it was probably about 60 to 70 SMB mid market. And then we were um, strategic advisors and had a customer with Lowe's and some of the bigger pro build and home building supply companies.
1: All right, as you guys know, I am hunting for a founder that I think is gonna to grow to hundred million bucks in revenue with just them as the only full-time employee. How are they gonna get there? Well, they're gonna automate all their tasks, they're gonna hire contractors, they're gonna have an internal learning management system for all those contractors to have high, high, high output. And the question is, how will they do it? Now, I haven't found that founder yet, but I have found people who are close, including Netcore. They've bootstrapped to 95 million bucks of revenue and 12 million in profits, and they rely on this very unique tool called Rocket Lane. They use Rocket Lane to write playbooks, reuse those playbooks internally to grow net core things like how to do a webinar, how to do a live event, how to push code. They also use it to track, plan, and manage resources and time efficiently across all of their dozens and actually hundreds now of team members. And it's also a collaborative central space for you and your customers. So you can ask your customers feedback for, you know, mock-up feedback, have your design team edit, then get your customers feedback all in this one tool. Now, they listened to the show. They reached out. They said, Nathan, we think folks will love it. I said, you're right. Give me a great deal. They did. You guys can try the tool for free. at Nathan com forward slash rocket lane. That's nathanlaka.com forward slash r-o-c-k-e-t-l-a-n-e rocket lane. Check it out today. Try it for free. So $300,000 ACV times 60 customers. I think that's like what an
0: $18 million run rate. Is that about right revenue wise? No, well, not quite. And the, I, I can't go into the details of that. But remember, there's a mix, right? So SMB mid market, those are uh global averages applied to uh you know transaction sizes are different in the SMB that they are in mid market and then you can have you know multimillion dollar deals in enterprise well, of course so, but
1: my question was what was the average customer paying and you said 300,000 so you may be using a higher you may be using like your enterprise average not your total customer average
0: well um so this might be a little pricing uh little side so you 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 we take outliers like your enterprise deals who, who buy in very large quantities and we stick them on the side and the averages that we look at are probably for 80% of the core of the business. But we had a few wild cards on the side that gave us good, really large chunks of revenue.
1: Okay. So you were, you, you're saying you were north of 18 million revenue, not less. No, we were
0: closer to about 10.
1: Oh, 10. Okay. Got it. Fair enough. Um, and then let's close that story out before talking purely about the new business and pricing. What did you do with the business in 2013?
0: What did I do with the business? As in yeah, my had, exit story? Yeah, you left, yeah. Yeah, so, well, my exit story was a lot of fun. So I got a wife out of it. Uh, ended mm-hmm. up being our VP of marketing. So uh, when you exit, it turns out you can take more than cash with you. <laughs> <go> <laughs> figure. Uh, but it was mutual. Um, so uh, the company was actually taken back private. The infrastructure that we built... Um, oh, you were apart- trading publicly? No, 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 no. Um, when I say taken back private, I mean my partner, my co-founder wanted to own the business ultimately as a lifestyle. So it was taken back during the market crash in a private scenario that he now owns that business and takes it forward under a new name that he rebranded under.
1: Well, when most people, when they say take private, they mean it was public and someone took it private. He was just buying your shares, basically. He bought he it from you. He just bought out yeah, the investors yes. and me. That's right. Okay. All right. So you move on. Now you referenced a couple of times that you reached out to software pricing partners when you're building companion, but I thought you were the founder of this thing. So help I me get my head around that.
0: Yeah. So I was, I was a founder and my friend from Ernst Young, he and I founded the business. And the thing with software is you spend all your time building a great product back then you could kind of build it and they would come and then later agile came around and then we would do MVPs and things like that for new features and new modules. But, um, you know, you, you don't really talk a lot about pricing. You just sort of like build the product, start selling it. And eventually somebody starts to scratch their head and say, Hey, you know, we probably need some standard list prices and modules and how are we going to package this? And are we going to count users? Are we going to count the number of purchase orders? That was a a model that we piloted for a while. We take a percent of the purchase order cost. We were in ERP sales, uh, shipping, receiving, and purchasing. And so as you play around with those different models, And then you go uh, through a deployment model shift you realize that the economics of the business are going to change dramatically and at that time we didn't understand what that would look like we didn't understand how to think about that and i thought it was like a study that we would do i thought we'd you know do this um, survey and some other stuff and it ended up being really the next five years of me becoming very close with the founding team at software pricing partners of understanding, hey, monetization actually intersects with product management It's actually part of the business model. There's a way to make this dynamic. And when we're in agile and we're sort of saying, well, this is kind of what we're going to produce next month. And this is what the revenue implications might be that connects directly to pricing. And we were able to kind of segue all that together. And I realized, holy cow, this is it's kind of like a missing whole piece to the business model.
1: So Chris, we've got about and two we didn't minutes have left. that. So, so, so a lot of, a lot I want to try to sneak in here. Um, right. How many software founders are you working
0: with today on pricing? Uh, um, well, I don't know the number, Nathan, but hundreds at least. And then we have...
1: Customers. Okay, so you're just to be clear, you're running an agency right now doing pricing for hundreds of SaaS companies at once. You must have hundreds of employees, at least a one-to-one ratio per customer, right?
0: Well, there's... Okay, so hold on a second. Some of our customers are governments, which... Take, for example, uh, a government has 1,400 of their fortune companies that are in there that are in our purview. We work with them in a broad variety of ways. We don't have a time and materials consultancy. We have a software product that sits under the hood. We do dynamic pricing. Our engine sticks under the hood of those software companies and becomes kind of the brains behind how they generate their net prices, how they operate, how they optimize all of that. So it's not... Oh, I see. It's yeah, it's a very here. different, it's like kind of like a hybrid to manage services plus a product play.
1: I see, I see. So how many, I guess a good way to answer this, how many folks are on the team today? And of those, how many are engineers?
0: Uh, well, so I I appreciate the the questions, Nathan, but some of this stuff we're just not going to release into the marketplace, but it's a sizable Wait, Sorry,
1: Chris, team. why is that an issue? If you say you're a software company, the quickest way to cut through any noise is to go, do you have engineers on your team? You obviously can't have software, engineer. Well, of course engineers. we do.
0: Oh, I think a lot of competitors want to know about how we do and what we do, what we do. And we have a competitive intelligence team and we understand how that information gets out. And we've chosen to keep a lot of that private. We're not interested in debuting a lot of that on the public front. We're not really going to expose that kind of information. I'm sorry.
1: Okay. Well, just your press team reached out, asked for you to come on the show. The show has done 3,000 episodes with the top founders in the world. What do you want to talk about if you want to talk about the company?
0: Nathan, <clears throat> I understand that. Um, did you listen to any episodes before you came on? Yeah, I think this kind of went in a very different direction of what you're trying to get on the podcast. But you know, we're not. So, you, you th- just th- to confirm, are, though, you d- you did listen to one episode before coming on. Uh, I did not. I did okay. not, Nathan. And so, I think that's maybe why there's a big difference. Well, there's a challenge here, right? Because when you exit a company. And pieces of the technology at Companion Cabinet were taken private. There, there were agreements that were made of things that I can talk about and things that I can't. Some of that technology went deep into large lumberyards. And I hope this part isn't going to go live, Nathan.
1: This whole episode we stop goes the live. Recording? Yeah, okay. absolutely. We can, can stop. We see- you want me to end? You want me to end? Yeah, let's let's stop and let's All call All right, this Chris, thanks for taking us to the top. Appreciate it.